0: Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. fool This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Allison, hello. Hello. In today's episode, we're joined by Beth Kobliner, author of Make Your Kid a Money Genius Even If You're Not. She's going to share her tips and advice for teaching kids to save money no matter what age they are. We're also going to answer your question about the nitty gritty of tracking your saving benchmarks, something? Something like that, a little bit. Okay. And we're going to talk, well, how would you describe it?
1: The nitty-gritty of savings rates, how much you should be saving for retirement.
0: There we go. And talk about our favorite kid entrepreneurs, kid kidpreneurs. Eh. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers.
1: Hello, Fools! Before we kick off today's regularly scheduled episode, we're going to have, first, a quick public service announcement in light of the data breach at credit company Equifax. And it seems that hackers may have made off with the personal data of about 143 million people. We're talking like Social Security numbers, driver's license, credit card numbers, birth dates, addresses. So we thought we'd just provide a few tips on what you should do. And to help us do that, we brought in Sean Gates, the certified financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. Hello, Sean. Hi, bro. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you too. Uh, so you have four tips for us. Let's just get right into it. Yeah, number so,
2: one. actually, before we jump into the number one, the number one thing you should go to is EquifaxSecurity2017.com. That is the only legitimate place to go f- to check if you've been exposed to this. It's a little bit confusing, but I wanted to just set that out because there will be other websites that people are trying to get you to go to to grab some of your information, so that's the only one that you should go to.
1: Right, and I should say, I'll just add, because my my family's been a victim of this type of thing, too. You might get an email that says it's from Equifax and says, hey, enter your Social Security number here, because then we'll be able to tell you whether you've been exposed to the phone. Don't fall for any sort of email that gets sent to you. Go straight to the website directly on your own. Absolutely. Okay, and that's a tip before we even got into the four tips. Those are bonus (laughs) tips.
2: (laughs) So, number one, actually, is to create an account with the Social Security Administration and the IRS if you haven't before. And the reason for that is if you're subject to any sort of vulnerability, it will be much more difficult for them to create an account in your name if you already have created the account. And a lot of these sites allow you to enable... Two-factor authentication, which actually delves into the second tip, which is for any online account that allows you to enable two-factor authentication, such that if you have a username and password, that's step one of the two factors. The second step is usually getting a text message with a unique code that allows you into the site beyond that.
1: Right. Or it can also be an email sent to your account if you choose to do that way, if you're not so comfortable with text. Because I know some people are not comfortable with the security of text messages and they prefer emails.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Right. Um, So it's very interesting, by the way, in terms of creating the own account. One of the things I've read about the, the risks of this is that people will go into some sort of official agency of some kind and change your address. Yep. So not only... Will they then take out loans in your name, but then all that information will get sent to this other address, so you won't even know someone took out a loan in your name.
2: Yeah, and I should say, underlying all of these tips, make sure you're checking your annual credit report at freeannualcreditreport.com, because a lot of this information will show up there, but if you're li- if you're passive in this situation and what you just described happens, you cannot even know it's going unless you're proactive and checking those things.
1: Great. Okay, number three.
2: Number three. So... I'm being a little bit out of the box in this, but I would say do not sign up for the free credit report monitoring from Equifax that they're encouraging you to, at least not yet. There is some confusion around the terms of service from Equifax that states that you may be excluded from the ability to participate in the class action lawsuit against them if you sign up for their free credit report monitoring, but I do suggest you sign up for credit report monitoring and then just pay attention to the news because I'm sure it'll get cleared up that those terms of services will get updated, and then you can participate in the free credit report monitoring for Equifax, but just be a little bit cautious at this stage of the game, since it's so early.
1: Right. And basically, this is a subsidiary of Equifax. They're le- letting you sign up for free for a year, basically, as an, a way of <laughs> apologizing for this major breach on their part. Yep. And the other concern there, too, is some people worried about that you were going to be automatically enrolled in, in auto-enroll, so yes. that after the free year was up, then they're going to start billing you, and that's something else that they're trying to address as well. Yep. And number four.
2: Number four is consider freezing your credit. So there's a whole list of steps that you go through to freeze your credit. Uh, It has varying implications, but I would say that this is one of the more minimally invasive types of things. It prevents you from taking out new lines of credit, but you can unfreeze it. But it's a great way to just lock down the ability for people to create accounts in your name.
1: Right. When you do this, the only people who have access to your credit score are people you already have relationships with, like your current bank, your current mortgage lender. It makes it impossible for new people to come in and say, "I want to look at this report and open up a new loan." So what they do when you freeze your credit is that then you have to temporarily unfreeze it if you want to apply for a loan, which was why some people find this kind of annoying or an inconvenience. Yep. Also, um, depending on you have to do it with each of the credit reporting agencies. Depending on your state, you have to pay for to pay to freeze it yep. and pay to unfreeze it. Depends on your state, and, and other people are also kind of annoyed by that. But I think on the whole, the price in terms of money and inconvenience is worth it to prevent people from accessing your report that you don't want accessing it.
2: Yeah, and I think those are all great points to bring up and apply even more so to the final tip, which is to set up fraud alerts. So fraud alerts are an even heavier-handed mechanism. There are costs. This goes directly to the credit bureaus. So you can sign up with Equifax, TransUnion, and they then will report the fraud alerts to the other two credit bureaus so that it's implemented across all three credit bureaus. The trick here is that it it makes it hard going forward for a long time. Now, you can set it up in different increments, 90 days, seven years, things like that, but the level of scrutiny that any new accounts that you would open becomes difficult to bear bear with for that entire duration, unlike a freeze where you can just sort of take it off.
1: Right. And I should say, I think, in most situations, the freeze lasts for, I think, just 90 days.
2: Yes, I believe that's true.
1: And then it expires. So, it's the type of thing, if you want to maintain it, you have to keep freezing it. Yep, Got it. Well, thanks for coming in, Sean. Yeah. Stay safe out there. Now, back to Allison. (laughs)
0: All right, it's time for answers, answers. And today's question comes from Jody. I've tried making a spreadsheet to see in detail how I'm doing against the savings benchmarks you talk about on the podcast. Do you hear that?
1: I am quite impressed, Jody.
0: This is probably overkill, but I wonder if you could clarify a couple of details that always hang me up. Now, do you want me to go through these bullet by bullet? Just why don't
1: you just do each one and then I'll say something after you? First one.
0: When people talk about saving a percentage of income, does that mean a percent of gross income or net?
1: Generally, they are speaking about gross. In other words, your pre-tax income, your base salary is what they're talking about. Sometimes people ask, well, what about the bonus I get? If you rely on your bonus every year to pay for your living expenses, include that. Otherwise, just rely on your pre-tax salary.
0: Is that savings over and above what goes in your 401k?
1: When you're talking about retirement savings, you are talking about any resources that you're saving for retirement. So that includes the money you put in your 401k as well as any match you receive. So let's say you have a household income of $100,000 and you do look at this on a household level. You put in $10,000, the employer puts in $5,000. That's a savings rate of 15,000 or 15%, which is what you should be shooting for. Early in your career,
0: and finally, if your employer contributes a match, would you count the match as part of your gross income, which would boost your savings goal at least a tiny bit?
1: Generally speaking, no. And I should say, anytime I talk about these savings rates goals in the podcast, it's based on my own research basically a survey of all the studies I've done. I've read about how much you should be saving, and none of them do it this way. However, you bring up a very interesting point, and that is how do you factor in the benefits into your retirement calculation? So, according to the Department of Labor, it costs an employer about fifty percent above the salary to provide benefits. So, if you're earning fifty
0: percent, yeah. So, if you
1: are making fifty thousand dollars a year, your employer is paying that, but then spending another twenty-five thousand on benefits. I'll bet
0: it's even more at the full. Well, that's it,
1: and that's. It depends. we depends how much
0: it. Is? I should ask.
1: Well, I, re- I remember someone in HR saying this is a while ago that it was about double, but who knows what it is. But but the thing those donuts is, donuts ain't free, man. That's <laughs> those yoga classes. Uh, but the thing is,
0: everyone <laughs> Why does did have you say it like that. There are people here who <laughs> love the yoga classes. I
1: know, I do. I love the yoga classes. Right. Um, but so, the stuff that your employer provides can be a big part of your life. And it should be factored somehow into what your life is going to be like in retirement. The big one, of course, is health care. Some people have outstanding health care from their boss. And when they retire and they go on to Medicare, they're going to actually have to pay a lot of money out of pocket that they weren't doing while they
0: were working. Oh, that includes us.
1: Yes. And on the other hand, of course, there are people who have lousy health care plans, or they might, be, uh, they might be self-employed and they have health issues. So they've been paying a lot in health care. When they retire and they go on Medicare, that's going to be a big relief to them. So, when you're younger, it's harder to really anticipate, you know, compare, line up your benefits you're receiving now compared to what kind of, what your retirement's going to look like, what you're going to need to spend money on. But certainly, if you are within 15 years of retirement, you shouldn't be relying on any sort of these rules of thumb. You really need to take a good look at your current spending, your projected spending, line up with your resources, and it's probably a good idea to get some professional help with that, even if it's a one-time thing made with the help of a fee-only financial planner, which you can find at, from someone at the Garrett Planning Network, NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, or our sister company Motley Fool Wealth Management.
0: Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Equal housing lender Licensed in all 50 states NMLS ConsumerAccess.org Number 3030 My house is full of sevens We want cake Where's our cake? Lots and lots of sevens We want cake Where's our cake? Beth Kobliner is one of the nation's leading authorities on personal finance
3: for young people.
0: In addition to writing a number of lovely books, she's also written for Money Magazine, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Beth, thanks for joining us today.
3: It's so great to be here, you guys.
0: (laughs) In your book, Make Your Kid a Money Genius, Even If You're Not, you outlined some really practical things that you can do and conversation to have with kids of every age to help them become better with money. So today we're going to just basically um, get those ideas
3: from you and give them to our listeners. Absolutely, they don't um, even have to buy the book; just oh, listen to me now.
0: No, they're going to want to buy <laughs> okay. the book because we're you cover saving, right. investing, charitable giving, all of these aspects in your book. But today we're just going to focus on how to get kids thinking about saving.
3: Perfect. And again, kids of all age. Kids from three to twenty-three. It really is you know, research shows, you could start at age three and kids could understand basic money concepts. And then by 23, they don't. No, they understand (laughs) them too, but you, you really want to hammer them home.
0: All right. So first off, at what age did you start learning about money and who was teaching you your money lessons?
3: Okay. So true confession, I was an English major at Brown, which is where I met Tom Gardner. But I didn't really pay that much attention to money as a child. And when I think back to why I got into this, and it was almost a revelation fairly recently, my parents were, my dad was a teacher and a principal, my mom was a chemistry teacher, but mostly a stay-at-home mom when we were when we were little. And they struggled and skimped and saved, and that's how I learned. That's why I started paying attention. They were very good about money. They weren't financial experts, but they were super smart about Putting the maximum they could into my father's 401k plan, which when it started in the 60s was 50% of his salary. Wow. And my he always comes home and tells me, you know, the story. He said to my mom, they had three kids and a mortgage. Like, we have to put 50% of my salary. And she's like, Harold! And my mom's name is Shirley. <laughs> we can't afford it. And my father said, We can't afford not to. And I never felt deprived, but I think I always observed that. Careful, you know, whether it's cutting coupons for, you know, buying stuff at the store on triple coupon day, going with my parents to the store, you know, in those days, like we didn't have the internet, so we'd have to go with our parents to do errands and, you know, see that and opening a bank savings account. And I think that experience throughout my childhood made me good and interested in teaching these basic lessons to parents and young people
1: when you told that story in your book is actually one of my favorite parts cuz most people don't think of that in terms of like you can't afford not to save for retirement cuz yeah. what are you going to do when you get to that Age. Exactly, um, and also I think another important point is that your father mm-hmm. was a sort of a child of the Depression.
3: Yes, right? he was a child. Both my parents were born nineteen twenty nine, the start of the Depression. So my dad's father was—he um, actually it turns out he was—he had a drinking problem, and he was out of work throughout the whole Depression. And his mom was a seamstress, so she would take in work to support four children. You know, and my my mom, her dad was—she was a little bit wealthier. Queens in the story. Queens but they had she wasn't certainly wealthy they were you know really struggling and her dad was a pharmacist at a drugstore and he was such a nice guy he would give away things for free all that like medicine for free because he felt bad for people so in both cases it was a lot of struggle and I think seeing that as a child and what it how it turned them into really good savers and I do think millennials are similar in that they're also having to be a little scrappier and to figure out how to make things work for them.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. You remember in the 80s, like it was that really popular to have the poster that said, like, he who dies with the most toys wins. You oh, remember that yeah, phrase? Yeah. Where, and it was like the 80s was such this time of like greed yes. is good
3: and greed access. Greed is good. Wall Street, the movie Wall Street. Wall Street, yeah. all that.
0: And so, because Gen X is not well known for being necessarily good with money. No. And I'm like, I wonder if it was because of all those greed is good posters. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas yeah. like millennials, it's like he who dies with the most artisanal kimchi recipes wins. <laughs> right? Like, but also, he who values. has
3: the most student loan debt better pay that off at some point. Right. So, yeah. I think, um, I just made that up, if <laughs> but, <Trademark>, <laughs> but I do think it's sort of a, a more difficult time. And the more and more I talk to millennials, they're kind of like serious. They're, you know, there's the beer and the cheese and the food that I don't understand. Like for me, local food was McDonald's. Like it's local, it's around the corner. But <laughs> local food, but I think, I do think that they really have had to be a little savvier and more and more have had to show, and they have less credit card debt certainly mm-hmm. than Gen Xers did um, when we were getting out of college um, because you know we got credit cards just by signing our names and they did not, the rules changed, and so you had to have a job, income, or be 21 to get a credit card. So I think that there's a lot that young people have had to learn similar to the Depression generation you know, due to an economic mess that really was not of their making. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think is kind of the biggest mistake that people make when they're trying to teach their kids about money?
3: I think people lie. Oh. <laughs> parents, you know, you're at the store and your kid's like, oh, "I want that." And you're like, "Oh, we don't have money." And then you go and buy a latte with a, you know, credit card and they're like, "Wait a second, you just said we don't have money. I don't get it." <laughs> um, I think they um, I think parents who have a lot of money uh, feel, feel oh, I'm really nervous about my kid being entitled. And so, and I've heard that, like I spoke at Google, and that was sort of a repeated question. And I think they're so afraid to even broach the topic of money. Um, but on the flip side, people who don't have much money, who are really you know worried about it, they're worried that their kids won't be able to have as good a life as they had and not go to the schools that they went to. So I think in general, we sort of think about our own financial baggage rather than just sort of put it all aside and say, here are the things I need to teach kids. And I don't think you have to be a money genius to teach your kid to be a money genius. I feel strongly about that.
0: Well, yeah, you feel so strongly. It's in the title. <laughs> make your kid a money genius, even if you're not. Even if you're not. All right, so here's how we're going to help you make your kids a money genius when it comes to saving. And again, okay. your book goes into saving, investing, investing. All these different topics around money, but we're just going to focus on saving today. So, what is an activity that you can do with your preschooler? Let's right. start. Let's just start young to get them to understand saving.
3: Okay, this is going to sound terrifying to anyone who has a preschooler, um, but go to. A supermarket with your preschooler and at the checkout line, let them peruse the candy and then say no. Because we know, (laughs) (laughs) University of Minnesota did a study and found when we say no to our kids at the checkout line, when we don't give in to the candy or gum or the, you know, crying and screaming for whatever it is they want, those kids who are said no to are more likely to live to manage debt in a much better way as they're older. And it makes sense, right? Because they have impulse control. They're building that impulse control um, muscle. So I would say for parents, go to the store. Don't leave your kid home because that's avoiding it. Go to, and say no with authority. And if you say it enough times, they'll learn, okay, well, it's not really worth screaming and crying because the last four times it didn't work. And I think, I mean, you have four kids, you know, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like that it's so important to be consistent and I've said this to people and many people said, thank you for empowering me to say no to my child, but I think it's important. (laughs) Because you know there's saving money and then there's dissavings, which is going into debt and just spending all your money. And a lot of little kids love to spend money already. So I think that's one of the important ones, say no at the checkout line.
0: I think I'm more terrified of all the judging from the other Whole Foods moms
3: I'm gonna get when Hannah has a meltdown. Yeah, you know, first (laughs) of all, uh, Whole Foods, that's what you're gonna get. But I also think that more I mean I think that you know that is that feeling as a parent like oh I don't want to seem like I'm doing a bad who cares just say to yourself (laughs) this is better for my child and there's so much we would do for our child you know if it were like if if it was better for him to spend a dollar every time we would all do it freely but it's actually better for him or her to say no.
0: All right let's talk about elementary school. Now where where do you fall on allowance? Because there are different... Ron Lieber's school of thought on this kind of shook us up last mm. year. And so...
3: Oh, yeah. What was it? I, I love it. it. What was his school of thought? Well,
1: thing? part of it was, do you tie allowance to chores?
3: Right, right. He right. says no. He's right.
1: And that's what you say, too. Right. Yeah.
3: And I actually looked into the research on this. And yeah. we know that from research, it's that parents who have their kids do chores. Chores are essential. You have to have your kids do chores. But if kids whose parents didn't pay them for chores, those kids, there was a study done um, finding that they're more likely to hit milestones like graduating from school or even starting Mm -hmm. a career because of that internal motivation they have by doing their chores, being responsible, they're part of a family. So it's not only psychologically I think it's important. I think what it does is, again, exercise that muscle of, I'm gonna be a responsible member of this family and I have to do my chores, that's just what I have to do. I think that's a really vital thing for children in the long term. And again, people do think, wow, that's crazy, I'm not gonna get my kids to do it. But if that's how you start off, or even, you know, Ideally to start at three or four or five tiny little chores, like put this plate in the dishwasher, you know, and you have to not give them expensive plates because that'll be the end of it.
1: But I think you want
3: to just sort of make that a rule. You make your bed as best as you can, or you do something like that. And for extra jobs, like one-off jobs, or things you would hire someone to do. Like I am terrible with my photos, and so I would try to like think, oh, how can I have somebody put them in some sort of reasonable order? So my now 13-year-old, every now and then I'll, you know, give them a small amount at like $10. bucks, i am like, could you just spend a few hours and you know fix this for me? And that kind of thing is fine, the one-offs. But not making chores tied to allowance is really important.
1: But you still do believe in an allowance.
3: Right. So I looked at more than uh, a dozen research studies on allowance. And I, there are some internationally, some in the U.S. And the bottom line is it doesn't really matter. Like you can give your kid allowance. And if you do it, you want to be clear, you have to be consistent, like stick with what you're telling them they're going to pay for, don't change, and do it in cash. I think cash is really important. There are all these apps and I think actually giving kids cash, which is concrete, makes a real difference. But I also think you don't have to give allowance. You can just sort of say okay, well our rule is, you know, I grew up without allowance, just when I needed money for a certain thing, you know, my parents didn't have a lot and they would make decisions based on whether they thought it was worthwhile and whether they had it. And if they didn't have it, they'd We didn't get it, and I think that neither one, at least according to the studies out there, is the right way. It's not like, oh, if you give allowance, because I meet so many parents who are so guilty, they're like, oh, we started allowance in June, and now it's like August, and our kids forgot to ask, and we forgot to give it, and they're all stressed out about allowance. (laughs) If you want to do that, great, but you don't have to do it to make your kids smart about money.
0: All right, let's move on to middle school. What can you do to help a middle schooler understand saving? Saving.
3: I'm a real believer, first of all, in opening a bank account for a kid, middle school or younger. And then, depending on your kid's interest level, I mean, right now, of course, interest rates are still so low, although they're rising a little bit. So, you know, maybe you can find 1%, or there's some banks that give a little higher rate if it's a kid's account. So shopping around helps. But also going to an online bank, if a kid is really interested, you could say, hey, you know, I remember my son when he was little, he was in maybe like sixth grade. And he's like, he asked my husband one night, like, Daddy, where does compound interest come from? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How can I get more of it, you know? <laughs> and I think that, you know, kids love to hear, okay, well, this is half a percent. And that's 1% and you know, in the end it's not huge numbers. It was better in the, you know, eighties when CDs were at much higher rates. But still opening a bank account, feeling like you're a grown up saying, we're gonna save and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna go and you get those statements. Unfortunately I don't have Passbook savings accounts, but you get the statements and seeing that money grow is empowering, even if it's just putting money into it. um, I think, you know, I have memories, and I said this at every talk I've ever given in the last year on a book tour, I say, who remembers opening their bank savings account? And so many people, like 35 and up, raise their hands and smile. Like, yeah, I remember, I opened my bank account. And I think sort of making that a real thing for kids, because now, of course, it's all done online, and it sort of becomes meaningless. And I think being mindful of saving and talking about it can be somewhat motivating for many kids.
0: All right, next up, high schoolers.
3: Right. Um, I have a few here. I would say um, having uh, your kid open a Roth IRA, which sounds nuts, right? High school Roth IRA. But if a kid has a summer job and if they're really saving money and saying, you know what, you could open this thing, a Roth IRA. And even if you put a thousand, say you earn a thousand dollars over the summer, starting at age 16 to age 20, and you never invest Again, I mean, you know the math. If you do that, by the time your kid is, you know, ready to stop working, sixty-five, he'll, he could easily have two hundred thousand dollars in that account just by comp the money compounding. So I'd say, starting to start with a a. a, a Roth IRA, and even if your kid makes a thousand dollars, as long as they earn a thousand dollars, you could give them a thousand dollars to put yeah. into that Roth IRA, and make that sort of like, here's some seed money. I want you to start with this, but you can't touch it for many, many, many years. It can be kind of empowering for a young person. Again, very
0: motivating Absolutely. if you're gonna double your investment immediately. Exactly, to mom and dad. <laughs>
3: exactly. <laughs>
1: so obviously, someone in high school, they're getting close to college. Yes, and. As I understand it, one of your beliefs is that kids actually should contribute a little bit to paying for their own college degrees. Definitely,
3: definitely. I mean, one nice thing about a Roth IRA, and this is mostly if you think you probably, you know, you might get a little financial aid, but the savings a kid has isn't really enough to make a huge difference. But I have to say that when they look at the formula for how much money you have to contribute to college, for when kid a kid has savings, that's... counted more heavily than a parent's savings. So by putting it in a Roth IRA, you're taking it out of the equation. They don't usually look at money in Roth IRAs. You cited a
1: study that indicated kids who who had to do a little bit to pay for their own college degree actually had a higher GPA.
3: Exactly. And it's probably just the idea of having a little skin in the game. Um, Just about a month ago, my dad pulled out the sheet where he decided uh, and spoke to me about whether I was going to go to Queens College, which would have been basically free, or to Brown if I got into Brown and other schools, which I didn't get into. But I and and one thing I saw was I contributed every year $2,000 for four years, and I was like, wow, that's the equivalent of almost $10,000 today adjusted for inflation, and so I. I remember very you know, clearly working, and it never being a deterrent, actually, it actually was kind of fun in college. And we do know when you work in college, as long as your hours are under 20, 20 um, hours per week, and as long as you have an on-campus job actually, that also results in a somewhat higher GPA than kids who don't work at all. So having your kids contribute, having them work in college, is really a, a beneficial thing according to the research. We do know that there's more pressure on kids with college, and just more awareness of colleges, and kids are prepping for SAT courses. Boy, did my kids get surprised when they saw my SATs? They're like, "Mom, we thought you were smart." You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was
0: just a different era. <laughs> they also readjusted the formula. There by you go. The way. There you so. go. That was the
3: hard SAT. Yes. That's what I. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But I think that um, for for. For kids overall, you know, using that summer, it's hard to work during the school year. And studies do show if you work more than ten hours a week in high school, you are probably uh, decreasing your chances of graduating from high school. So more than ten hours is kind of a cutoff point. So I think you should, you know, if a kid wants to work during school, it's great. Just keep it limited. But during. The summers of high school is a great time to really try to figure out how you can make some money. And those jobs, I mean, I remember I I learned to make change um, when I worked at a diner as a hostess. I didn't know how because I would take the number and subtract it. And my dad said to me, no, you... No calculus, math, honors girl. You have to, you know, round up. If a bill is $3.47, you say, okay, three more pennies make 50 cents, you know, and then add 50 cents to that. So that's how you give change. You don't su- try to subtract it in your head. So practical skills like that. I mean, people are paying now with debit cards and credit cards, but it's still good for kids to have practical, service oriented skills that will last them a lifetime. Gotcha.
0: All right. Young adult, the young adults in our lives, how can we help them understand saving?
3: I'd say the best way to save as a young adult is to pay off high rate credit card debt. Just that idea of paying off a credit card that's charging a rate, say, of 15%, is the equivalent of earning 15% on your money after taxes. So talk to your young adult, especially if they're living home with you, try to encourage them to look at all their debts and pay off the high interest rate debt more quickly than maybe the student loans. They still have to make all their payments on time, and that's another important point. But when it comes to saving, paying off high rate debt is super important, I believe even more important than setting up the emergency cushion because I think you're you're always you're digging yourself into a hole by continuing to pay high interest rates on credit cards. So having your child and imparting that information, paying off those high rate debts most quickly, I think is a very valuable lesson to pass along that we certainly don't learn in school. I mean nobody really tells you that. So I think that's an important one. Talking
0: to kids about money is obviously something that people don't love to do, so what is some parting advice for our listeners who are ready to get in there and start talking about
3: money? Right. I think, I mean, honestly, and I think you guys would agree that a lot of this stuff is made so complicated, often by the people who are selling you things in this field, and I think, you know, Start saving right away in like a 401k with matching if you have that at work. That's a no-brainer. That's free money. When would you turn down free money? Pay off those high-rate credit card debts. I think those two concepts alone, teaching your kids that, will go such a long way for making them successful in life. And of course, index funds or ETFs, putting money in those. I think that you don't have to be a money genius to teach your kid to be a money genius, and that's not just a slogan. That's really something I feel so strongly that by sort of demythicizing it, in, I hope in my book and teaching kids whether you know whether your kids are really little or you're starting later in the game, and your kids are teenagers or even you know moving back home post college with you, uh, you want to know that it's not that difficult. And by reading. You know my book, or any learning this information, you can teach your kids the habits that will last a lifetime, and that's so valuable and necessary. Since so you bring up index funds, uh, another thing that you discuss in the book is teaching kids how to invest. Right. And
1: you're actually not a big fan of opening a brokerage account for a kid and then no. having them go out and buy five individual
3: stocks. I'm not. I think that you know, I have um, I've heard so many. Stories of parents are like, Yeah, my kid is just brilliant financial whiz. He picked the two best stocks, you know, and the next person's like, Oh, my kid, he'll never be an investor. She'll never be an investor because look how poorly these did. It's basically a random walk. We know that. A random net walk down Wall Street. You could throw darts at a, you know, a dartboard of stocks listed there, and you probably would do just as well as by putting it in an index fund. So I strongly believe that for the vast majority of young people, explaining index fund, explaining diversification to young kids, explaining why this is the smart thing to do, because I believe, we talked about this before, that you know um, I think actually before the show, that in the 80s it was about greed, like how do you get the most that you can? I think for this generation, certainly the millennials I talked to, they want enough money to live the life they want to live, and I think your best shot at that is something like an index fund or an ETF invested in an index like the S and P or a broad-based index, and um, so I'm a real believer in those.
0: Beth, we have run out of time, ah. but thank you so much for joining thank us you. again for our listeners. Beth's books are, or at least the two that I've got in front of me, are make your kid a a money genius even if you're not and then for millennials and young adults you also have written Get a Financial Life Personal Finance in Your 20s and 30s Um, we'd love to have you back on again to talk the next time you're in town I'd love to and then I'm going to ask you stories about meeting Elmo and Uh, Tom Gardner not at the same time (laughs) that
3: would have been something (laughs) (laughs)
0: Warren Buffett famously started young as an entrepreneur. He bought his first stock at 11, and by 14, he used the $1,200 he earned from paper routes to purchase 40 acres of land. Buffett points to a study that shows business success later in life is tied to how young you were when you started your first business. Sound financial habits at an early age translate to success when you're an adult. So, we're here to share a couple of our favorite stories of kid entrepreneurs. Yes. Uh, this was actually a really tough one to research because I went online and I'm typing kid entrepreneur as one does and just I would read all these lists and it would be like so and so invented an app and I was like nope and yep. like and this and this person invented a website nope and like so many of the current kid entrepreneurs are tech focused.
1: Yes, which is actually why I chose the person I chose because that's not the case.
0: I know, and that's why I chose the person I chose. Who should go first? What do you all have against tech? I think the thing about that is,
1: first of all, not everyone has those skills. And second of all, it feels a little bit like the lottery. Like If you're trying to start a website, try to sell an app, or even if you're, there are a lot of stories of kids selling stuff on Etsy, for example, you know, they make this cool little hat and they go on Etsy. I would say if you look at, I bet, from a percentage-wise, the vast majority of those efforts do not lead to significant financial success. So that's my that's my feeling about it. I don't and know what you think. You think that's just down to luck? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's just luck, but there's a lot of luck involved there.
0: I don't know. Well, a lot, with a lot of these kid entrepreneurs who invented an app, there's just not a lot of story there. It's just like there's a kid, he made an app, profit. Like that's it. Except profit. And so there's not a lot to say. And and then he had his 16th birthday. Like that's as far <laughs> down the road as we are with his story. So. That's why my story. I feel like I maybe cheated just a little bit with my story, but okay. Well, you
1: want to go first with your story? You sure? I'll go first. All right.
0: My story is this: this my favorite kid entrepreneur, the unsinkable Richard Branson. Never heard of him. Of course, you've heard of him. Of course, from Virgin. Uh, So here's his story, which maybe you guys don't know, but I think it's pretty good. I've never heard it. You've never heard it? No.
1: All I know about him is an airline, movies, and having naked women on his back while he skis.
0: Right. So you know him as like crazy entrepreneur who like goes up in hot air balloons and he's always hanging out with models and Right. So, here is how he got his start. Thanks to his mom, Richard Branson has always had the entrepreneurial spirit. In a LinkedIn post, cuz yes, he's posts on LinkedIn, he talks about how his mom was a resourceful entrepreneur who never had time to fret over failures because, quote, it was always on to the next adventure. <laughs> Fun. So here is uh, his first failure as an entrepreneur. Actually, there's here's another reason why I don't like those tech stories because there's not a lot of Schadenfreude in it. So there's some like there's some Schadenfreude. Or, so here we go. All right. <laughs> Whatever. I'm a horrible person. So Branson started his first small business at 11 with his best friend Nick. Uh, this is so British. So, it's, of course, Nick is spelled N I K. Over a holiday break from boarding school, they decided to breed budgies. Which, what? yes, those are birds, right? They are. They're parakeets. If you are an American, okay. Uh, which was apparently all the rage back then with the kids. So, basically, they're like, "Oh my gosh, everyone loves budgies. Let's go home, and we're going to breed budgies for the holiday." So the problem is is that the budgies started multiplying faster than they could sell them, and then the holiday ended. So they had to go back to school, leaving Branson's parents to take care of the budgies, and they were like, uh, no. And so Branson thinks that rats got most of the budgies, and then his mom just opened up the cages and said, get out of here, I don't want you anymore. So that was failure number one at age 11. Uh, Failure number two, his next business was involving Christmas trees. And I thought this showed surprisingly long-term thinking for a, for a kid. Uh, he bought a ton of little baby Christmas trees and then decided that he would harvest them five, six, I don't even know how many years later, but a lot of years later. Uh, but it didn't work out because he thinks maybe the rabbits ate them. Like I don't know what kind of rabbits... These I don't know I don't I don't have a lot of that's his guess is as good as mine sure <laughs> the rabbits ate them all right so it turns out third times the charm five years later at the age of sixteen Branson who um, was dyslexic I think and struggling with school anyway he decided to drop out and start student Magazine. Its goal was to give young people a voice and challenge perceptions of youth culture. And they covered politics, news, music, which later led to a very profitable mail order music business. That later became a discount retail store called Virgin because everyone involved was a complete virgin at business. Uh, then later came Virgin Records in 1973. And they had their first worldwide hit with. Rick is gonna love this tubular bells. What? <laughs> so you, you okay? So I oh tubular bells. I'm like I think I know that that song. No, I do know that song, but it's not the song I thought. Do you know what the song is? It's the theme from Exorcist. Oh really? Like that really creepy tune yeah, yeah, that yeah. you would probably be able to make the make the sound. But yeah, yep, yeah, yep, that's it. And so. <laughs> The song's like 25 minutes long, and it changes from that creepy to. Anyway, the song goes everywhere. The guy who wrote the song, because yes, I went a little bit down a Google hole, the uh, a Google rabbit hole. The after the because they ate all the Christmas trees, and I chased it after them. Uh, Apparently, Drugs were to thank for this song, so thank you, Drugs, for giving us tubular bells. Um, Anyway, the company really took off, though, when they signed the Sex Pistols after all these other record companies were like, no, you guys are too much for us. So, Branson is still known for being a risk taker and not afraid to fail, aside from budgies and Christmas trees. Some people might remember Virgin Cola or Virgin Brides, both huge failures. But he now holds interest in more than 200 different companies that include radio stations, hotels, vodka, and a financial planning network. Wow! So maybe next time you recommend where people find a planner, you just say, or maybe check out Garrett Napa or Virgin Financial Plan. I don't know what the actual name is, but I assume it's just for our, our Brits listening. Probably. So I'll close with a quote from Richard Branson. I don't go into ventures to make a fortune. I do it because I'm not satisfied with the way others are doing business.
1: Wow. Fun fact, when I was a teacher for five years, I taught at a school in Georgetown which was two blocks from the Exorcist Steps and I would have to walk down those at the end of the day to get to the metro. Have you ever been to the Exorcist Steps? Mm-hmm, yeah. Spoochy.
0: Alright, bro. Um, tell me about your kidpreneur. Well, Mike kid, Brunner, is not
1: nearly as glamorous, but that's what I like about his story. Where I'm going to tell you the story here about Emil Matichka, a young lad from Colorado. So, when he was eight or nine, one of his school assignments was to find a way to pay for college in the event that they couldn't when college came around. So when the teacher said, why don't you just come up with a business plan? He liked machines, and he liked being outdoors, so he came up with the idea of a landscaping business, and he started doing it with the help of his first customer was, the customers, where his aunt and uncle paid him $10 to mow the lawn. But he liked it. Uh, and then it turned out, actually, sadly, that his mother got cancer oh. and he decided, well, maybe I do need to do, start making some money to help the family out. So, by age 13, he was starting his business. So, using his grandfather's lawnmower, he knocked door-to-door looking for customers. And as he says, the business took off like a weed. Oh. Within a year, he actually borrowed $8,000 to buy a commercial lawnmower, and he was able to pay off that four-year loan within two years. Obviously, his parents had to co-sign sign for the loan. By the time he was 16, he owned trucks and trailers and had employees. Some of them were two or three times his age. By the time he went to college, his business was making over $100,000 a year. So He's going to college, so he sells off part of the business, part of the equipment, keeps some of the customers for spending money. Some other thing happens in the family and they have to use the money that he saved for college to take care of this family emergency. So he says, all right, I'm going back into the lawn business. And while he's a student at the University of Colorado, he starts buying up other lawn service companies. So by the time he graduated, he had already several customers, went into the business. Now he's in his late 20s and he serves over 2,500 customers in the northern Colorado area. What I like about the story is, this is the kind of a thing any kid could do. I did it. I mowed lawns when I was a kid. What sets him apart is that he really hustled at it, and he was pretty forward-thinking. When you think of a 13-year-old borrowing money for a commercial lawnmower, and then he acquires trucks and things before he can even drive, so he has to get these vehicles and then hire people who can actually drive them to the sites, I think it's pretty impressive.
0: How would you even find out about this kid?
1: He was written up in, in various things. I found him in entrepreneur, on entrepreneur.com. He was written up in Inc.com. He was given an award uh, when he was a college senior. for It was given to a hundred kids who were college business owners and he went to the White House. So there's a few articles written up about him.
0: Oh, what yeah. a nice story! Yeah,
1: it's a great story. How do you get kids interested in doing stuff like that? I don't know. I really don't know because it sounds to me like I assume this these is not kids show, may have but. gotten help from their parents, but they didn't. Their parents didn't push them into it so much. At least that's from the sounds of the stories. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's. I think that's true. So it's not my fault. It's, it's not, not.
0: Well, in the case of Richard Branson, he was modeling behavior that he saw his mom do, but it's also possible that it was kind of in his DNA to be able to shake off failure and just keep moving forward. I mean, we've talked about. Um, you know, raising kids that have grit and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I think some amount of it can be taught, and some amount it's kind of in your DNA to just fail forward.
2: Should I have been more supportive of my kid when he wanted to sell Star Wars origamis? No.
0: Yes. You're a horrible parent. Oh, I was going to say no. I mean, you're, you're not, you don't have to do it, right? Like, you can support him, but you don't have to be out on the street. Like, you didn't try to sell me Star Wars origami, which I appreciate, I appreciate you not doing that. Thank you.
1: I told him that it's not a very good idea.
0: Oh, you did?
1: You crushed the spirit.
0: Well, no matter what, I'm sure you can find a website that's telling you you're doing it wrong. That's the joy of parenting. Someone always thinks you're doing it wrong. All right, well, on that fun note, that's the show. It's edited dream crushingly by Rick Engdahl. Uh, Oh, we have some postcards to talk about. So, Tom in Rochester says that we're welcome to visit his brand new spanking house anytime. (laughs) M. Allen sent us a postcard from Idaho, which, because of the magic of pre taping episodes, is where I am at this exact moment that you're listening to this episode. Wow. I know. And Rod sent us our first card from Slovenia, which looks really cool. So, uh, thanks, you guys. I'm so excited that the postcards just keep coming in, even though summer's wrapped up. Our email is answers at fool.com. Feel free to send us some questions. We're probably gonna do like an investing mailbag episode coming up and another general financial planning episode coming up soon. Uh, so send us your questions. Again, answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, Camp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.